zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jess Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Only When I Laugh, released September 25th, 1981. It was written by Neil Simon, directed by Glenn Jordan, and released by Columbia Pictures. Neil Simon's play The Gingerbread Lady debuted on Broadway in 1970 and ran for seven months with Maureen Stapleton in the lead. Despite its reputation as a rare flop for Simon, it landed Stapleton a Tony for Best Actress. The play followed basically the same characters with different names, except that it was about the protagonist's descent into alcoholism, where the film's focus is on the same woman's rocky recovery. The lead role of Georgia Haynes, Evie Mira, in the play, was initially inspired by the life of Judy Garland. A review of the film from someone who'd seen the play claimed that they only had about 15 lines in common. This is also the only Neil Simon adaptation to be released under a new title, possibly because of the significant changes to the plot. I was going to say that, that it's weird because it it still feels incredibly like a play, but I guess that's just because of Neil Simon he's a, writing He's it. a playwright, yeah. yeah. So exactly. it still feels like a play because he writes plays. And he might have intended it to be a, like a sequel play at the start and then changed it into, it into a movie a film. yeah fed up with being jerked around by the producers of his past adaptations simon attached himself as a producer this time this afforded him his own first choices with regard to the cast and crew for the first time in his role on set he was also available full-time for last-minute punch-ups and rewrites Najinsky helmer herbert ross was simon's first choice to direct but ross was amusingly already contracted to direct a different neil simon adaptation I Ought to Be in Pictures, which would hit theaters a mere six months after this one. Let me space them out a bit, Neil. Yeah. David Shire's main theme for the film was recorded by Brenda Lee, but for whatever reason does not appear in the film, just the soundtrack. This was evidently enough of a release to qualify it for a Razzie nomination for Worst Original Song. But even though you never hear the song? Even though it's not in the movie, it's only on the soundtrack. Sold separately. (laughs) The film was nominated for three Oscars... Actress for Mason, supporting for James Coco, and supporting for Joan Hackett, who plays Toby. Huh. Really? Yeah. For all of them? Mm-hmm. Okay. James Coco became the first nominated for both an Oscar and Razzie for the same role. <laughs> it's happened twice since then, to Amy Irving for her part in Yentl and Glenn Close for Hillbilly Elegy. In the UK, the film was released under the title, It Hurts Only When I Laugh, not It Only Hurts When I Laugh, but It Hurts Only When I Laugh, to avoid confusion with the popular British television series, Only When I Laugh. Seems backwards, right? Yeah. It hurts only when I laugh, instead of saying it only hurts when I laugh. Whatever. We open on Marsha Mason as Georgia Hines speaking with a psychiatrist at a rehab clinic. She claims that the drinks aren't what attract her, but the bars and the people there. She likes that drinking makes her funny and that people enjoy her company that way. She hopes sobriety sticks this time because she's been through rehab before and she doesn't plan on doing it again and she wants to fix things with her daughter. Outside, we see a car pull up the long driveway to the clinic. Joan Hackett, as Toby, steps out, and Georgia watches from a window upstairs. You had to look gorgeous today, right? Georgia comments on her weight loss to a nurse, 
and the doctor stops by to bid her farewell and flirt a bit. The doctor walks her downstairs to Toby, and the two friends hug. Toby's glad to see her friend looking so healthy. On the way back to George's apartment, Toby spoils a surprise that their mutual friend Jimmy is stocking her fridge for her. As they pull up outside the building, a crowd of children take two-by-fours to Toby's car as a funny joke. <laughs> Inside, James Coco as Jimmy does some last-minute touches to the place to prepare it for George's arrival. There's a knock at the door, and it's a guy delivering groceries. Jimmy asks him to charge it to George's account, but the delivery guy says there is no account. Jimmy has to pay himself and is very rude asking the guy to leave. Next, Toby and Georgia show up, and Jimmy's on the verge of tears, happy to see her. Georgia is a bit woozy and needs a sip of water to take her pills. She's disappointed to hear that her friends both have plans this afternoon. You're leaving? I thought you were going to stay here and grow old with me. Don't be absurd, I'm never growing old. Jimmy prepares a platter of bagels and cream cheese, and Toby admits that Polly, Georgia's daughter, knows she's coming home today, and she should reach out to her if she needs company tonight. Before Toby leaves, she makes Georgia repeat a promise she made in the car on the way here. I will be a good girl forever and ever. Thank you. Georgia asks Jimmy how much the groceries cost, and he lies that they were free. He laments his failure in the entertainment business, and he can't wait to be a star. That's the joke you always use. What, that I can't wait to be a star? No. <laughs> when I ask free? how much things are, and you're like, ah, oh, it's free. Yeah, they said it was free today. <laughs> oh, God, I want to be a star so bad. I don't mean a little star. I want to be a big star with three agents and a business manager and a press agent. And then I would fire all of them, and I would hire new ones because I am such a big star. And I would make everybody pay for the 22 years I have poured into this business. I wouldn't do benefits. I wouldn't give money to charity. I would become one of the great shitheels of all time. Georgia asks if they would still be friends, and Jimmy jokes that he's been her friend long enough, and he's seen no reward for cleaning up after her these last 11 years. Georgia asks if anyone called for her, and Jimmy knows she means her ex, David. He's a terrible liar, though, and she's able to extract from him that David has a new pretty girlfriend. Jimmy tries to head out, and Georgia wraps him up in a hug. Why don't we smarten up and marry each other? Because you're an alcoholic and I'm gay. We'd have trouble getting our kids into a good school. <sighs> Finally left alone, Georgia enters the bedroom she's been avoiding so far. She stages all of her personal items that she brought back from the clinic around the room, and the phone rings. It's Polly, her daughter. She has a dress rehearsal at a performing arts school this afternoon and she wants her mom to attend. All right. I'll try. I mean, I'm not promising. I may not be able to stay for the whole thing. Georgia makes it to the Horton School just in time for Polly's big number. You gotta have heart. All you really need is heart. Georgia is clearly enjoying the performance and after the show, Polly is ecstatic to see her here. Did you just get here? I saw the rehearsal. Yep. I'm gonna kill myself. You were wonderful! The orchestra was five beats behind. They played it like a funeral. Polly calls her friend Heidi over to meet her mother, and the girl overshares about her dysfunctional family. As they walk off to find a bite to eat somewhere, Polly breaks it to Georgia that she got her dad's permission to move in with Georgia on a temporary basis. Georgia is shocked by the proposal. Somehow, Polly's father was able to get in touch with Georgia's doctor to learn that she is healthy enough to care for her own daughter which seems like a blatant HIPAA violation. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess... Excuse me, Doc. Can you pull up my wife's file? I, I guess if the question is, is my wife healthy enough? Like, 
I mean, I guess that's an okay question, right? Like, well, they can't like, tell you anything is, about your is, health. Is she not? Is she alive? Is yes. my wife dead? Yeah. <laughs> Give it to me straight, Doc. Yeah, she's alive. Hip a violation. <laughs> Polly can sense her mother's hesitation, but it's only because her life is so complicated she worries she won't be a good mom. Polly demands an answer from Georgia before she boards a bus to head home without her. I think it's wrong. I don't think I'm ready for you yet. I think it's a mistake. But if we're going to make it, let's start Friday night. Jimmy and Georgia put a new coat of paint on the second bedroom for Polly. Polly arrives with all her bags and Jimmy buzzes her in. The phone rings and it's Georgia's ex-boyfriend, David. She takes the call in her room as Jimmy lets Polly into the apartment. David wants to meet with her soon, tonight or tomorrow, to discuss something he claims is important. And she is quick to refuse. What? Ten minutes of your time too much to ask? No, it's not too much to ask. It's too much to give. Once Georgia has welcomed Polly to the apartment, she learns that they have a lunch date with Polly's father in a few weeks. Hours later, mother and daughter are stuffed on junk food. Georgia mentions the call she got from David and asks what Polly thought of the guy. I liked him. Why? Because you liked him. <laughs> That's not the smartest way to judge people. Next, Georgia asks Polly what she thought of her and forces her to admit the anger she felt when Georgia would drink and ruin family events. I wanted to kill you. Then why didn't you ever say it? Because I figured you were in enough trouble without having your daughter come down on you. It occurs to Georgia that this is exactly how she used to protect her father as a child. Polly wonders why her mother would drink if she saw what it did to her own father. She basically blames peer pressure, which is hopefully a bad enough excuse that Polly won't lean on it in the future. Hours later, they talk about the custody battle that placed Polly in her father's care. Apparently, the decision went largely uncontested because Georgia was terrified of ruining her daughter, and Polly never forgave her for not fighting harder. And this was the daughter that IMDb described as needy. Needy. Yeah. <laughs> Late that night, Georgia calls David back to officially accept his offer to meet tomorrow. She admits that she was advised not to make this phone call, and he admits the same. Early the next morning, rock music is blaring out of the kitchen as Polly prepares breakfast for herself and mom. She finishes up a second round of blueberry pancakes before running out the door for tennis with dad. Georgia heads to Joe Allen Restaurant to meet with David. On her way through the bar, everybody seems to recognize Georgia and compliments her recent transformation. When she finds David, he and even the bartender compliment her new look. I saw you come in. I couldn't believe it. You're gonna have to give us a new picture for a while. 30 minutes into what their lunch- What did she look like before? I think she was just heavier. Yeah. She said she lost like 30 pounds, I think. Yeah. Just from all the drinking? Mm-hmm. Possibly from drinking. And mm-hmm. I, it sounded like when she went into the clinic that she literally had like wounds or like cuts on her, oh, abrasions okay. on her face. But I don't know that that's like, obviously the picture on the wall isn't her with a black <laughs> eye. We hung up this one of you yeah. just lacerated. <laughs> Punched her in the face right before we took it. <laughs> like you went through the windshield of a car. Yeah. <laughs> 30 minutes into their lunch meeting, David finally gets to the point. He went into analysis to rethink his failures as a writer and their relationship together. He says he wrote down every aspect that he could remember from their relationship. The movie rights must be worth a fortune. No. But I think it makes a damn good play. Turns out he has recycled their time together into his latest opus. Not only would he like her notes, he's asking her to flat out play herself in the part on stage. He has the entire crew assembled. All he needs is her approval and a yes. He'll be in California for a few days and he wants her to read it while he's gone. That's an incredibly traumatizing ask. Right. Yeah. Like, I yeah. can't believe he would do that to somebody who's in a potentially fragile state, let alone, like, 
just in general. It's like, here, please relive the trauma of our relationship over and over in front of people every night. Yeah, since I heard you literally just got home from the clinic, this is definitely you're in the right position to read this. They chat a little bit about his new girlfriend and her mood sours, but he won't let her leave without the play. That night, Polly invites her friend Heidi to sleep over, and in the middle of the night, Heidi's snoring drives Polly to her mom's room, where she finds Georgia reading David's play. The play is called Only When I Laugh, like the film. Polly wants to talk about a boy named John Steuben. Turns out, there's also another boy named Adam Kasabian, and they both like each other, but Heidi is also into Adam. She doesn't want to lose her friend by pursuing Adam, and apparently wants two boyfriends, so she can't risk losing John either. Georgia doesn't offer much advice for Polly's situation other than allowing her to verbalize it. She asks what David's play is about. Oh, it's about this big, fat, sloppy, foul-mouthed, drunken woman and an attractive, sensitive writer. I don't believe it. He actually had the nerve to send you that. Worse, this idiot went down and got it. Georgia admits she was hoping it would at least be bad, but it's well-written, too. What does only when I laugh mean? Old joke. A man has a spear sticking through his chest and his friend asks, does it hurt? And he says, only Only when when I I laugh. laugh. And you're the one with the spear, right? You got it. I don't get it. I I don't know. Yeah. I don't get it at all. I mean, I know like the joke, like it hurts when I do this. And it's like, well, don't do that. You know, like, but is this like that? It's like, is it because you you shouldn't laugh because there's a spear sticking through you? So you wouldn't be laughing? I guess. It's not a funny thing. So it doesn't hurt. I don't know. It's a playwright joke. (laughs) polly is concerned about her working on a play in close proximity with david but georgia tries to allay her fears she believes she can keep it professional the next day georgia speaks with a representative of the clinic to check in on her progress and to ask permission to participate in a play they basically put the decision back in her hands that afternoon as polly's school is letting out she and heidi argue over which of them will set up their professor mr tarloff with polly's mother Presumably, this is Polly's plan to avoid Georgia trying to rekindle things with David. They tell Professor Tarloff that Georgia can't make the teacher conference and would like to meet with him in person to discuss Polly's progress. He agrees to meet at a nearby coffee shop Tuesday at 5. Later, we see Georgia arriving for that meeting, and after some confused introductions, it dawns on them that Polly and Heidi have played matchmaker here. They seem to have a pleasant enough conversation, but when Georgia gets home, she's very angry with Polly for setting her up like that. But did you like him? What do you mean, did I like him? I am working. I am doing a play. I haven't got time for things like that. No dinner for you tonight, do you hear me? No dinner. I already ate. Then no breakfast. And I wanted her to say, I had breakfast before I had dinner. (laughs) (laughs) We see a sign being installed outside a theater announcing Georgia Hines in Only When I Laugh. We cut inside the theater for a rehearsal of a scene. Georgia and a stand-in for David argue over her drinking and his writer's block. It seems David's claim that the arguments are taken verbatim from their life is true, and at one point in the scene, the past catches up with her too vividly, and Georgia has to stop down for a minute. The director's concerned for her. What is it, Georgia? It's hard. That's all. I know. That's why it's so good. They stop down for a smoke break, and David takes a seat beside her to make sure she's okay. She's still not even sure she can do this play. Sometime later, we see Georgia arriving late for lunch with Toby. Toby seems testier than usual and eventually explains that she found a long gray hair on her husband's jacket. If it's another woman's, I'll kill him. If it's mine, I'll kill myself. Toby, trust me, you are a work of art. Do you guys recall the last time someone said they would kill themselves when they showed signs of aging? 
Oh, I do. I as soon as you said that, that line was familiar. Uh. She kept a cyanide capsule in her locker at school. Yeah. Death before disfigurement. Was it student bodies? It was student yeah. bodies. Nice. I didn't even have that one down here. I just remembered it was. <laughs> Jimmy shows up a couple minutes later with news that he landed a job. Not a job, Skinny. A part. A role. A major character in a major production. Oh. Unfortunately, it's in a minor theater in an undiscovered part of New York, but it's the first step on the ladder to shit heel. <laughs> Before they place their meal orders, Toby invites them to her 40th birthday party this weekend and snaps at them about wasting her time here. For some reason, everyone's laughing moments later. Is the joke here that she's not 40 or is the joke that she's being so obnoxious to them that they think it's funny that she sounds so angry? I honestly don't know. But they're also hiding behind giant menus, which is another connection yeah. to last week's film. We get a montage of mother and daughter shopping around the city. Polly notices a couple college guys following them around, so she and her mom duck into a cafeteria for lunch and wait for the boys to join them. One of the boys is being played by Kevin Bacon. Kevin Tremors Bacon. Polly introduces Georgia as her older sister, and they don't question it. I'm a freshman. I'm a senior. Yeah, I thought you were the older one. The guys invite them to a party on McDougal Street in the West Village. Georgia plans an exit, and the girls have to abandon their barely-touched meals. Like, they took, like, three bites each of their food. Yeah. I, I really didn't understand the whole point of this. Why they left, or the, 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 this the whole purpose scene. of the scene? Yeah, yeah the scene no. in general. Because she was already talking about how she's having an issue juggling two guys. Yeah, I think they're just trying to show more of Polly trying to set her mom up with guys. Because she really doesn't want her to go for David. Back in the apartment, they joke about the encounter with Jimmy. Georgia reiterates the age difference, and Polly cites the age gap in Manhattan as though that were an acceptable one. Well, I don't see what's so wrong with that. I mean, in Manhattan, Woody Allen was 42 and Mariel Hemingway was 17. It doesn't work when he's 17 and she's 42. It doesn't work either way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> doesn't, no, stop. Even in that movie, the point is that it was an inappropriate age mm -hmm. gap. They entertain Jimmy with a quick piano performance. They've been practicing a song for Toby's party. Guess I'll have to change my plan. I should have realized there'd be another man. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a terrible mother-daughter piano duet performance? Oh, yeah. It was, um... Oh, what was the name of that movie? With the, the husband that leaves her and she goes to the art dude and... So she was what and she is now what? She was... What is the name of that movie, Richard? I, I, I can picture it. What is it called when there's a guy in your life that you live with all the time? Married? And, but then when he goes away, then you are? Divorced. divorced. Or what's Separated. another word? <laughs> unmarried woman. An, An unmarried, unmarried woman. woman. All right. <laughs> that was painful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I like to give clues instead of just saying it. <laughs> Before they even finish the song, David calls and Georgia rushes away to answer it. Polly is clearly annoyed to be abandoned at the piano. Later, we see Georgia step out of a cab outside the theater. She's not scheduled for a rehearsal, she just came to see David. The theater is dark, so she has to call him up to the stage and presents him with a gift. I hope you're into 1942 Mickey Mouse watches. Get it? I don't get it. <laughs> it occurs I think that's just what it is. <laughs> was it? I, I thought I, it was just a watch and she was joking that it would be a 1942 Mickey Mouse watch. Oh. Maybe, maybe it is. I don't know. We don't get close was. enough. 
It occurs to David that he should introduce Georgia to his girlfriend Denise, still waiting there in the dark. Georgia manages to be pleasant through the introductions, but when David and Denise step away, she starts to have a meltdown. A call comes in for her backstage. It's Jimmy delivering word that the party has been canceled, but he's calling from backstage at his own job, and the stagehands won't let up and they're hammering long enough for him to explain. Oh, I just got a call from Toby. The party is off. Could you just hold it a second, please? I'm on the phone. Would you please, for the love of God, and your own body, hold the hammering? Turns out, Toby's husband is leaving her for another woman. Georgia makes plans to meet with Jimmy at Toby's place tonight and hides in her dressing room where David finds her moments later. She blames her freshly rotten mood on Toby's ex. As Georgia walks to Toby's place later, she has trouble hailing a cab and keeps passing bars. She ducks into an office building to call the clinic from a payphone looking for her doctor for help not drinking. Unfortunately, he's not available at the moment. Eventually, she does make it to Toby's place, where they split hundreds of dollars worth of appetizers bought for the now-canceled party. She pours Toby a glass of champagne. It's for you. I don't drink. Toby has a big monologue about how famously beautiful she's been for her whole life. When I was 17, a married psychiatrist in Beverly Hills drove his car into a tree because I wouldn't answer his phone calls. You can read all of this in my diaries. I still have them. I know, Angel, I know. I've had some of the most influential men in the world in love with me, desirous of me desperate for me more than any other woman I've ever met in my entire life. If that son of a bitch could turn to me after 12 years and say he's no longer interested, well, he can get out. I don't care. I don't need him. I... The doorbell rings and Toby steps away to fix her makeup. Georgia finishes Toby's champagne and then answers the door. Jimmy arrives and admits that he left his gift at home. To top it all off, he just got fired three days before the opening of his new show in front of the entire cast. It's so close to the show that his name will already appear in the print ads and his family are flying in. They gave his part to a non-actor understudy. He's not even a full-time actor. He's a Puerto Rican cab driver. He can hardly speak English. My 12-year-old niece has never seen me on the stage. She's going to walk in the theater and think she's got a Puerto Rican uncle. Georgia can see this calls for more champagne and heads to the kitchen for more bottles. Of course, in the privacy of the closed-off room, she pours herself a few glasses first. We cut to the building lobby as Polly arrives with Adam Kasabian downstairs. They haven't heard yet that the party is canceled. Back in the party, Georgia is now shouting with energy as she sympathizes with her friends, and it takes Jimmy a few beats to realize that she is now unabashedly drinking with them. You promised me in the car, you swore to me you would never touch another that drink. in the car. I am not drinking in the car. Am I drinking in a car? God damn you! Stop it, Georgia! Doorbell. Am I the only one who hears doorbells? When she hears it's Polly, Georgia sets her empty glass down, implying she is done for the night and promises to be good, but right away, Polly senses something is off. Greeting her with a big kiss was probably also a mistake, because I'm sure she can smell the champagne on her breath. Yeah. Polly asks Toby discreetly if her mother's been drinking, and Toby blames her situation for the relapse. Georgia catches them whispering and makes a scene of it. If I were Adam Kasabian here, I would have gotten Polly out of here immediately, but Georgia tries to make the party work in spite of the awkwardness, and it's just making me extremely uncomfortable. Toby tries to invite the kids to the kitchen for a piece of cake. Help me. I feel like having some of my birthday cake. Wait a minute. I haven't seen her all day. Let Jimmy help you. He's not working anyway, right? Adam, would you fill this for me, darling? You've had enough, Georgia. Georgia asks Adam to freshen her drink, and insanely, he's about to when Toby has to tell him to stop. 
Georgia demands another drink and accidentally splashes Toby's drink all over her fancy party dress. She tries to drag Polly to the piano, but Polly refuses to sing and Georgia can't remember the words anyway. Polly finally pries Georgia away from the piano to speak with her mother in private. She unloads a lifetime of monologues all at once. Every time I got sick, I used to pray that I would die just so you'd break down at my funeral and beg me to forgive you. Well, I don't want your forgiveness and I'm not gonna die just to get something from you because I don't think you're worth dying over. You asked me the other night how I really felt about you. I was so angry at you for never being around when I really needed someone. Well, you're around now, aren't you? And it sure as hell is a disappointment to find out that I was better off when you weren't around. Holly, no, drink all you want. I don't give a damn. We cut right to Jimmy and Georgia in the backseat of a cab on the way to Georgia's place. She asks for his hand and he's reluctant to comply, but he can't help himself. Adam Kasabian, the idiot, walks into a liquor store to buy a big bottle of alcohol for Polly instead of saying, I don't think that's a great idea and I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Back at Georgia's place, she and Jimmy are watching Gilda on her TV. Jimmy tries to sneak out when Georgia falls asleep, but she's startled awake by his attempt. He tells her it's time for bed, but agrees to let her sleep on the couch here. Jimmy says he's going to wait for Polly to get home, but she tells him that he can leave because Polly will probably bring Adam back and they'll want privacy. And they're cool with her mom sleeping on this couch. Yeah. Well, yeah, she she said that uh, they'll probably come home and want to fool around. It was like, wait. Like, isn't it weird <laughs> for you to be out here then? Shouldn't yeah. you maybe go in your room? Out on the campus, Polly is chugging the alcohol Adam bought her. He warns her not to drink it so fast, but she isn't feeling it yet. Sometime later, Georgia wakes up on the couch and realizes Jimmy didn't leave her any cigarettes, and she uses this as an excuse to leave the apartment. As we see her walking the streets, the score knows what she's up to, and it gets very somber. She pops into a bar to buy cigarettes, and we cut back to Polly feeling the effects of her drink. The cigarette machine at the bar is broken, so she has no choice but to speak directly with the bartender. Of course, she orders a vodka rocks to go with it. I think he asked how much money she put in, and she said $12, like it says. $12 in 1981? I think she was exaggerating the price. Oh, okay, because I was like, I mean... Because I don't think they cost that now for one pack of cigarettes. Oh, they might. With all the taxes and stuff, they... They Maybe there's the crazy taxes in New York, and and it was actually twelve dollars at the time. I but mean, that they seems were the, like a lot. They were the first ones to start. Uh, like New York was the first ones to start putting the crazy taxes on them in order to prevent people from buying them. Right. But I don't think it was in 1981. No, that's crazy. <laughs> the guy on the bar stool next to her starts to chatter up about the boxing match on the TV. They each pick a fighter and wager drinks on their man. When the fight ends, Georgia has lost the bet, so she drops money for the man's drink on the bar and turns to leave. Unfortunately for her. He feels led on and follows her out. He claims he followed her to return her cigarettes, but he's quickly struggling for a kiss from her. She demands he let go of her, and he drags her through a chain-link gate into a vacant lot. We cut to Toby's apartment, where she gets a phone call from Jimmy that Georgia is not home. Not sure how he figured that out, because he already left, but well, he must have gone back to the house. Well, I, th- I think he's been calling the house, and she's not and answering. she's not answering. I would but just assume she was asleep. She was exactly, drunk. Exactly, yeah. Toby hears her own doorbell and promises to call Jimmy back if she hears anything. She finds Georgia at the door with a black eye and a bloodied nose. She explains that she was not raped and that she fought back. She asks Toby to let her stay here tonight and to please keep things secret from Jimmy and Polly. She begs Toby to pour her a drink right now, and at this point I might have just pushed her back out the door. Like, all right, if we're going to have this argument again, then you could just wait outside where there aren't any drinks. Polly calls and Toby tells her that she's here and she's safe and she'll be spending the night here. 
Toby puts Georgia on the phone with her to keep her from making another drink. Speaking with Polly, Georgia asks if they can possibly reschedule the lunch with Polly's father tomorrow. Well, you could call and ask him. Why would he get suspicious? He's only going to get suspicious if you tell him something, you know what I mean? After she hangs up, Georgia and Toby step out on the balcony for some fresh air. Georgia repeatedly compares herself to Toby in terms of their general failures in life, and Toby doesn't appreciate the comparison. And the truth of it is that I have never had a lasting relationship with anyone who wasn't as weak and as helpless as I am. Toby explains that they're friends because she cares about Georgia and is in awe of her gifts, not because she's pathetic or weak. The two friends make up quickly. The next morning, Georgia arrives home by taxi and starts to make some breakfast for herself and Polly. When Polly enters, she keeps her head turned away from her daughter to hide the black eye. Eventually, Polly calls her out. Then why won't you look at me? Well, that's the surprise. It's not as bad as it looks. Oh my God. What happened? Georgia tells Polly that this isn't working and she can't put her daughter through this week after week. Polly admits to getting wasted last night and that she enjoyed not caring what it did to anyone else. She insists that they can cover the bruising with makeup and tries for a bit until Georgia aborts the mission and repeats that she cannot join them for lunch today. Polly is disappointed but understanding and leaves alone with all her things. Georgia calls to her on her way out the door. Polly. When I grow up, I want to be just like you. Jimmy busts in just as Polly is leaving. Georgia doesn't understand why her daughter keeps forgiving her for everything she does. Of course she does. We all do. Why? Just tell me why. Because you're special. Crazy, lunatic, disgusting, but special. Special people deserve to be loved. We dissolve to Tavern on the Green, where Polly and her father sit at a table, and then we see Georgia moving through the crowd in sunglasses to join them. Right away, she shows off the injury, not intending to hide it, and we back away from the restaurant for credits to roll. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a meal at Tavern on the Green? Uh... Same actress from Unmarried Woman. It's my turn. It's my turn. The score comes back hard at the end. I haven't mentioned it thus far, but the first five notes of the theme are the same as the start of They Might Be Giants' song, I Am a Human Head. And I hear it every time the theme reoccurs. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I don't know that one. But the... is the same. And the theme. Yeah, this movie um, is not for me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I get why producers (laughs) typically told Neil Simon to hire big names. Um, I'm very surprised that this movie got the acting nominations that it did. Not because the acting is bad. I just didn't feel particularly interested by it. Yeah. It's all very fun and witty and bantery. Yeah. Um, But I don't feel like anything is really happening. Yeah. Uh, I feel like we're, we're moving from scene to scene and we're having all these really interesting conversations, but it's not advancing any sort of story. Right. And I should mention that this is a Neil Simon play and that there's a lot of lines that I did not include here because 
it's it's so dense with them mm-hmm. that there's no point in trying to cut out every single clip. So if if you really want a proper feel for this movie, you have to watch it yourself. But I don't I don't think that there's enough here to warrant that screening. But then Vintage Video has a terrible track record for plays that were adapted into feature films. So it's not our thing. Yeah. It, it's what seemed to me like what this movie was going to be about was her struggling with the material of the play. Right. And that was driving her more and more to want to drink again because she's getting back into old habits. Mm-hmm. But the play, we, we only get that one scene right. of the play and then that has nothing to do with the rest of the film. Yeah. And I'm not super clear on, you know, what we're trying to get at here. I mean, she's she's coming out of recovery and she fails and she slips up. And at the end, that's just kind of where we leave it. Like, Yeah, I don't get the impression that, that her daughter has made a significant change in her outlook and that she's going to do better next time. I don't think anybody's like, changed in this entire movie. Yeah, she doesn't even seem like she's taken complete responsibility for what she's no, done. No, not at all. Like, yeah, there's no reassurance that this isn't going to happen again. There's no, like, commitment or realization that she's really... I mean, showing up to the breakfast is saying, okay, I hurt my daughter's feelings. But it's it's like, this is the least you could do. Right, yeah. yeah. And also, like, I do feel like her daughter went pretty far in terms of, like, I literally wished I was dead because of things that you did in the past. And it's like, that's a, that's a bunch of, that's a hard truth to drop on your mom. But also... She's doing it when her mom is three glasses or three bottles of champagne in. So it's like this isn't the kind of a talk that's going to have a lasting impact on her. Yeah. But I like James Coco. I think he was yeah, great yeah, the whole way fun. through it. I I I enjoyed the performances. I didn't I don't know if I thought that they were Oscar worthy. No. But um I Definitely not Razzie worthy though yeah. for Coco. That's crazy. Yeah, I I wouldn't say that I had a great time watching this movie, but I mean, like it was like oh, this is fine. But in the end, I, I I just was like, okay, well, that was it. Yeah, it's over. Yep. But that climax scene was uncomfortable enough for me to want to like, I mean, like I had to watch all of it and make the notes for the podcast. But if I weren't doing this for a show, I would have been skipping every 30 seconds. Like, yeah, I can't I can't watch this. This makes me way too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But that's what it's supposed to do. But it's a thumbs down for me. Yeah. Thumbs down. Yeah, it's a thumbs down. I, it's, I feel bad because I love Neil Simon. And uh, but now I'm wondering, like, do I like it because of all the people that he puts in the, in the movies? <laughs> yeah. Against his own will. <laughs> he puts all these people in because producers made him. So he decided to be his own producer, so he wouldn't have to do that anymore. Um, what are we thinking, Letterbox, Jess? Um, I have it at eighty-five. Is that of one hundred and twenty-eight? Yeah, out of one hundred and twenty-eight, I have it at eighty-five. It's below Bloody Birthday and above Polyester. Above Polyester? Oh no! It was. Uh, there's a lot of yelling in Polyester. I hate when they yell in movies. Okay. Richard. Um, I have it at 50, uh, which puts it below SOB, but above American pop. Interesting. 50 seems really high. I, <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't, I don't think it's, it's competently ba- made. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think it's a bad movie. It's just, I, I just, I feel very middle of the road about it. All right. Um, I have it in 118 out of 128. Oof. So it's almost in my bottom 10. Um, it's just under honky tonk freeway and just above hard country. 
Our director here was Glenn Jordan. This was his first feature directing credit. He previously directed TV shows called Friends and Family in the 70s. Two different shows, one called Friends, one called Family. Christy McNichol showed up in one of his Family episodes. In 1996, he also directed that Candace Bergen-led Lifetime remake of Tim called Mary and Tim. Same director as this. He came back to direct a second Neil Simon adaptation in 1996 with Jake's Women. Writer Neil Simon wrote The Odd Couple, Murder by Death, The Goodbye Girl, also the original Out of Towners, which we covered on Patreon last season. We saw his work last season in Seems Like Old Times. The music here came from David Shire. He's the composer of Taking a Pelham 123 and All the President's Men. Cinematographer David M. Walsh. Before this, he lit Sleeper, The Sunshine Boys, Murder by Death, and Silver Streak. We've seen his work on Hero at Large. Private Benjamin, and Seems Like Old Times, and later he lights Johnny Dangerously and Summer School. So both Kevin Bacon movies so far. Yeah, yeah. This and Hero at Large. Editor John Wright later cut The Running Man, Hunt for Red October, TMNT 2, Secret of the Ooze, Last Action Hero, Speed, Die Hard with a Vengeance, X-Men, and Passion of the Christ. Marsha Mason played Georgia. She was married at the time to playwright Neil Simon. She appeared in five of his film adaptations, The Goodbye Girl, the Cheap Detective, Chapter 2, This, and Max Dugan Returns. This one is not a retelling of their relationship, which would have added another level of meta to the story. Yeah. Asking your wife to play herself in a movie about a playwright asking his wife to play herself in this story. But her previous film with Simon, Chapter 2, was the story of their relationship. Mason played herself in the film, but not on stage. Ed Moore played Dr. Comack. Nothing else I recognized, but... yeah. Um, he's very high high billing for someone who doesn't have a lot. I guess this is in order of appearance. Joan Hackett played Toby. She was Catherine Allen and Will Penny. Prudy and Support Your Local Sheriff. We saw her last season as Lonnie Fox in One Trick Pony. I think that was the love interest of the Paul Simon character. Mm-hmm. She was also married for some time to actor Richard Mulligan, who played the ill-fated director Felix Farmer in our review of SOB earlier this season. This was her last completed film role, because she passed away of ovarian cancer two years later during the production on her final film. James Coco played Jimmy. Before this, he was Poirot parody Perrier in Murder by Death and Marcel in The Cheap Detective, making this his third and final appearance in a Neil Simon film. We saw him last as Dudley Moore's father in Holy Moses, and later he's Mr. Skeffington in The Muppets Take Manhattan. Christy McNichol played Polly. McNichol evidently enrolled in dancing lessons to prepare for this part, which doesn't seem necessary at all. Yeah. I mean, she swings a baseball bat around for a minute. Uh, We saw her last in Little Darlings. She's back later in White Dog and the Pirate Movie. She was also in another 1981 title called The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, which we'll probably get a mini-sode review next year because I didn't find it until after we had finaled the season calendar. Later this season, we'll see her brother, Jimmy McNichol, in Smokey Bites the Dust and Butcher Baker Nightmare Maker. Dan Monahan played Jason. He plays a character named Pee-wee in the Porky's trilogy, and he's also Max in Up the Creek. David Dukes played David. Unfortunate name. Yeah. <laughs> he played Howard Hallenbeck in Rawhead Rex, and we saw him last in First Deadly Sin. Michael A. Ross played Paul. He's mostly a writer-producer with credits on shows like Andy Richter Controls the Universe, Better Off Ted, and Santa Clarita Diet. Peter Caulfield, or Cofield, played Mr. Tarloff. He was the politician father, David Pearl, of one of the girls from Times Square last season. John Bennett Perry played actor, Lou. We saw him earlier this season as Dan Reed in The Legend of the Lone Ranger, 
where we mentioned that he also starred in Fool's Rush In alongside his actual son, actor Matthew Perry. Byron Webster played Tom. He was a purser in The Poseidon Adventure, which has taken a strong lead for our December Patreon pick in the current poll. Jane Atkins played Doreen. She has a few other acting credits, but mostly writing work on soap operas, including 27 Santa Barbaras and 52 Days of Our Liveses. <laughs> Liveses. Henry Olick played George Devane. That was the director of the play. This was his last film. Kevin Bacon played Don. He's in Footloose, Tremors, Apollo 13, Hollow Man. We saw him previously as Teenager 2, Teenager number 2, in Hero at Large last season. Ron Levine played Gary. He was Leland Lebrun in The Nesting. I think that was John Carradine's son, who was like a, a physicist or something like that. Oh, yeah, he was like yeah. some weird doctorate that he had. Uh, Rebecca Stanley played Denise Summers. She was Sally in Underground Aces and Kimberly in Body Double. Guy Boyd played Man in Bar, presumably the guy betting her drinks. He's back later this season in Ghost Story and Ticket to Heaven. John Vargas played Manuel. That was the grocery store delivery boy. He's Jetta in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. This was also his first theatrical film appearance. Katherine Jansen played Woman in Crowd, uncredited. <laughs> that could be anybody. She was Mrs. Van Hoffman, patron of the Sedgwick Hotel in Ghostbusters, waiting for the midnight buffet outside the banquet hall <laughs> where the Ghostbusters catch Slimer. I assure you, Mrs. Van Hoffman, there is no problem with the room. It will be ready promptly at time as soon as your guests are with us. I think that's everything for Only When I Laugh. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Or as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing So Fine, which IMDb describes like so. While trying to get his father out of a financial jam, a man comes up with an idea that turns into an unexpected overnight financial fashion success. Bottomless pants. <laughs> what? We leave you now with a trailer for So Fine. Are those just shorts? No, they're like assless pants. Oh, chaps? <laughs> no, they're full jeans, but with just your butt cheeks hanging out. Cool. Yeah. Hello. Hello. I pulled that out. Where's the approximate location of your husband? Oh, my husband. You got some set of hands. I got some set of everything. My husband, he never comes home. I'm a very unhappy woman. You are? Help me. You're sure he never comes home? Never. I knew it. I knew it.
comedy where the end remains to be seen. Hi, I'm Sophie, and I haven't seen a lot of movies. Hi, I'm Paul, and I'm here to help with that. And we are SP Film Viewers. Each week, we take a deep dive into films that Sophie is seeing for the first time, some of which are deemed classics, some of which are my favourites, and some are just to try and get a reaction from her. We don't take ourselves too seriously, but we have a lot of fun talking about what we've watched. And we hope you have fun listening to our light-hearted thoughts and ramblings on this cinematic journey. So tune in every Thursday on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcasts from. <laughs>